All right. Um, welcome, everyone. Good afternoon or good evening uh, from uh, for people who are listening and watching this uh, uh, all over the world throughout the live streaming. Uh, my name is Miles Yu, and I'm the director of the China Center here at the Hudson Institute. And today we have a very uh, uh, important topic to discuss uh, uh, by a distinguished panel uh, here. I say distinguished, uh, uh, they are. If I read their full biography in our introduction, it will take probably 40 minutes to, uh, to uh, time. So uh, to save time, we printed their full biography uh, there, uh, panel, and in, uh, you can find them in your seat. Uh, and also, uh, we're going to basically know, uh, uh, have one hour. After one hour, we have uh, 30 minutes of time. You can mingle with the panelists particularly with one of the panelists who authored this book uh, back over there outside this, this, uh, this uh, lecture hall. Uh, so well, moderating today's event is uh, the Honorable Ambassador uh, Paula Dobransky uh, over there. And uh, Paula is a familiar face to Hassan. He, she is actually a member of the advisory board uh, for the China Center here at the Hassan. And of course, we have... Uh, uh, Roger Robinson. Uh, Roger, Roger is a familiar face if you're in the China field. He is the most uh, foremost uh, analyst uh, on uh, the financial system and China's uh, uh, interaction with the Western uh, capital markets. And then Bill Martin, obviously, is a very uh, renowned uh, former official and uh, author. And uh, sitting uh, next to him is uh, our own Dr. Thomas Dusterberg, is our resident uh, foremost authority on uh, political economy. Uh, in a world, particularly on China. And the, uh, the main um, author, the author of this book is right here, is uh, uh, Richard Levine. Richard Levine, the uh, is over there, and he read this very important book. He, afterwards, he will have happy to sign books for you for free outside the room over there. So um, without, uh, uh, I, I think that's all cover all of them. Without further ado, I'm going to uh, basically ask uh, Mr. Levine come here to make a, a few remarks about the gist of his book, and then followed by the panel uh, discussion. Thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Uh, a Global Alliance for Freedom. Dear friends, an immortal truth governs the universe. God can become man, but man can never become God. This statement is the font of all mercy, for this truth is patent not only to the believer, but to any person who has studied the history of totalitarianism. If we hold the state as sacrosanct, our individuality is forfeit. For if government is not constrained, its citizens are inevitably viewed as the property of the state. Slavery thus ensues. Today we are charged to consider matters of supreme importance to meet unprecedented global challenges, we propose that steps be instituted by a new Republican administration, should it be elected, to build a global alliance for freedom. America cannot lead if the core of our country is not strong. Russia and China. Forcing alien doctrines upon its people, China today stands guilty of the crime of self-deification. The pandemic that began in China and Russia's invasion of its neighbor have shattered the prism through which the United States and our allies must see the world. We must challenge President Xi that he yield to China's cries for freedom and religious liberty. 
the citizens of China deserve better than rule by a communist junta that constitutes this century's evil empire. As a nation, we have no option but to face new geostrategic realities. Therefore, we must comprehend that American weakness in the face of aggression will only beget further assaults. The entire world is blistered by the war in Ukraine. Colossal failures within Russia in part motivated Vladimir Putin's thirst for conquest. Russia, however, is not the People's Republic of China. The challenge China poses is far greater, for it contests our nation in geostrategic reach and in technological advancement. Moscow's objectives in Ukraine are mirrored by Beijing and the Indo-Pacific. They hinge on the perception that America and its allies are dominated by political discord. Our past inaction in the face of Russia's assault of acts, combined with Western energy dependencies, created a tinderbox that exploded. We must be on watch, for if China dominates a post-conflict Russia, a pan-Eurasian colossus could be formed that would be even more dangerous than these irredentist countries are individually. America cannot allow the present conflagration to become the fuse that will ignite a co a coordinated conflicts across the globe. It is imperative that the principles of American military and energy dominance, coupled with restraint in the use of force that commits our nation to battle, be advanced. The Middle East, the infamy that issues from the attacks perpetrated by Hamas must be answered. International humanitarian law recognizes that civilians may be harmed when they are near legitimate military targets whose destruction conveys an anticipated military advantage. This projected advantage must outweigh collateral harm. The concept of proportionality is most often misstated by the media to mean that all reactions in battle must not exceed the destructive power of the initial blow. This is incorrect. The object in war is to win, not to trade blows endlessly. Israel must defeat Hamas. The Abraham Accords provide the platform on which we may rebuild. Let us do so with expedience. Should China gain a strategic foothold in the Middle East, displacing it will be arduous. We should remember the struggles President Anwar al-Sadat faced in removing the USSR's stamp from Egypt. Such action in the face of China's economic power might be almost impossible. Coupled with it, its base in Djibouti and other redoubts, China is positioning itself as a global military power. It is also empowering Iran through the institution of a multi-decade strategic partnership. Iran has determined America's will is insubstantial. It thus redoubled its support for terrorist acts throughout the region. These atrocities may soon reach and envelop Europe and the Americas, for a resurgent Iran fears little. Terrorism, precipitated by Iran, diverts American military power from the Pacific. This is China's aim. NATO is not the appropriate model for the Middle East. The Arab states of the Gulf, supported by the United States, must create a multilateral force in being. In addition, 
Israel's role as part of a regional defense plan should be carefully considered, for reinforcing efforts are a necessity to undermine uh, Iran's belligerence. Alliance for Freedom. Shared purpose with our NATO partners, as well as our alliances with Japan, Australia, the Republic of Korea, and what must become a multidimensional alliance with India, are essential in countering China's march. A new trade alliance should be formed between these nations, Israel, the Arab states of the Gulf, and other countries. This revised entity would constitute a security-driven economic and financial alliance. It would also secure resilient supply chains worldwide. In the Indo-Pacific, America must lead by expanding the quadrilateral security dialogue whose members are the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, and in integrating it with the AUKUS union that includes the United Kingdom. The new defense alliance should have as its founding members the Republic of Korea and France. Such a new defense and economic pact could be called the Indo-Pacific Treaty Alliance. Non-treaty nations should be invited to be observers. As with NATO, specific defense spending goals should be promulgated. Given the threat China poses, defense spending increases are mandatory. Actions. As Americans, we must act to safeguard our republic. Geopolitical actions may be thought of as occurring on the shell of an ever-expanding sphere whose surface represents every other act taken by innumerable actors across the globe. Our actions, no matter how grand, are almost always subsumed as this sphere expands due to the explosion of technology and the passage of events. Actions that garner legitimacy do so on the basis of their relative inerrancy in advancing successfully projected hypotheses. A different kind of entrenchment for a given action may result from the magnitude of its consequence and not the frequency of its ramifications. Most geopolitical actions are ephemeral. The exception is demonstrated when such actions touch the core of the sphere in which resides our culture's history, philosophy, beliefs, and precepts. In such cases, disparate actions become part of an unbreakable chain, becoming policies. Luminous policies over time rise to become national principles. In this way, the Truman Doctrine rose to thwart communist expansion throughout the globe, permitting Western Europe, Japan, and other nations to be rebuilt within the shelter of freedom. This doctrine, in time, permitted Ronald Reagan to win the Cold War, which was waged by seven previous presidents. Measures that are transactional in nature rarely endure unless they are secured to our nation's core. This must be communicated resolutely in order that our citizens accept linkages between a current action, our past, and our nation's promised future. This is the journey my book, Pillars for Freedom charts. The first year of a new presidency must not be wasted due to politics. To this end, the creation of national security study directives based on the ideas represented in Pillars for Freedom is imperative. Such directives must harness the power of government to support the priorities of an elected president. 
This is the means to impel the bureaucracy to take actions. This is the means to endow new policies with the imprimatur of our country's founding and history so that what we do may endure. Today, we stand upon a promontory overlooking pending elections that will chart the course of our nation. I pray that we will move forward into the future as one united people, sharing our joys and progress with friends across the globe. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. That was an exceptional overview of the content of your book, uh, Pillars for Freedom and is really going to stimulate a vibrant discussion here today. The only drawback is your book is so wide-ranging and there's so many issues. The way we're going to divide it up, we're going to first focus on economic security and energy dominance as part of our first discussion. And then we will go to the second part of the core themes of diplomacy, military power, and alliances. So I'd like to begin with the issue of uh, economic security. And in particular, this is for uh, Roger and then Tom. Uh, I'd like both of you uh, to jump in on this. We know that the Chinese Communist Party really operates a colossal system of state-owned conglomerates. Uh, we know that uh, there's control uh, economically, financially, materially telecommunications uh, sector, and it goes on. So the question really is, how can we thwart China's economic encroachments? But I'm gonna also add, if you will, uh, Roger, Tom, in this case, also don't only look at this question of how we can deal with the thwarting their encroachments, but how is China doing economically, financially? Tell us what it really is, what's happening? Roger, let's go to you first. Well, thank you, Paula, and I want to thank uh, Hudson for uh, hosting this gathering, and Miles, you in particular, uh, Richard Levine, for such a fine piece of work uh, to be the anchor for our comments today. So with that, I would just say that um, once upon a time, we had another uh, juggernaut on the geopolitical landscape called the Soviet Union. And it turned out that their total annual hard currency income in 1982 was $32 billion a year. 80% of that was derived from oil, gas, arms, and gold. Two-thirds of it, oil and gas. Then and now, so much for progress on diversification. And they didn't have a convertible currency. They were spending $16 billion a year more than they made. 100% was financed by Western governments and banks. Now, those are the facts of the case. So we were underwriting the total cost estimated of the external Soviet Union. The, all of its global uh, obligations were roughly uh, in the neighborhood of $16 billion in hard currency. Now, the ruble's another matter. So the point is, when we went after the money, when we went after the Siberian gas pipeline, which was the two-strand, 3,600-mile pipeline that would have not only made Western Europe 75, 80% dependent on Soviet gas. You know the disaster we've just recently had in Europe at 45, 50%, right? Just imagine if that was 80. It would have been if it had not been for Ronald Reagan 
the guy next to me and some others here. So the, the long and short of it is we went after not just the, the pipeline and killed, uh, delayed the first strand by three years, killed the second strand, which was Nord Stream 2, by the way, some 35, 40 years later. But we went after the credits. We went after the private commercial bank credits, and we went after the government subsidized credits, subsidized interest rates by Western taxpayers. So this is the short form way of trying to impress on you that although there was a multi-pronged strategy by Ronald Reagan for the takedown of the Soviet Union, I can tell you that when we went after oil prices, decontrolling prices at the wellhead here, getting the Saudis secretly to pump two million barrels a day more, oil drops to 10% for every dollar drop in the price of a barrel of oil, the Soviets lost a billion dollars. They only made 32 billion a year. That's one third of GM or Exxon's annual revenues at the time, one American corporation. Now this is a very different story than China, as you can tell, but I would argue that there, there, there is a strong case to be made that it was the economic and financial piece that was the death knell of the Soviet Union. They went, they defaulted on 96 billion in hard currency Western debt 48 hours before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Gee, I wonder if there might have been a connection there. So I just just like to start by talking about the fact that if we get serious about economic and financial security, the domain that we are utterly dominant in globally we have 66% of the world's investable capital. We have capital markets that are roughly the size of the rest of the world's combined. We have the world's reserve currency versus, again, another non-convertible currency over there in China, right? So the long and short of it is this is our sandbox, and others are playing in it. And so we are not in some kind of situation where we need necessarily an alliance structure to do what I'm going to talk about doing, it would be nice and we're all for it, but is it necessary? <laughs> no. Was it necessary for the takedown of the Soviet Union? The answer is no. That's the truth. This is an American event to a large extent, although I couldn't be in more fervent agreement on alliance building and the necessity of sharing these burdens. But at the end of the day, you know, we may have to get down to business uh, rather solo. This has been what history has taught us. So Roger, what action can we take? Well, I would just say quickly on the Chinese, <laughs> this is probably the largest financial scandal in geostrategic history. This is the multi-trillion dollar underwriting by a democracy, notably our own, of a totalitarian police state, China, by Western investors, that, that we are picking up the tab for this entire juggernaut with the unhappy cooperation of Wall Street asset managers and index providers and others, and those officials uh, uh, official regulators in the government at Treasury, SEC, the National Economic Council in particular, that are, tend to be conflicted. 
They come from Wall Street. You know the revolving door. They're not taking these things seriously. And as a result, we have 5,000 Chinese enterprises now in our capital markets. We never screened who they were. We never had any CFIUS structure or any kind of regulatory framework that we took seriously. We never looked once, and neither did Wall Street, at human rights and national security abuses. They didn't even look at sanctioned or non-sanctioned. Nothing. And I've been doing this for a long time, so I can tell you that this is so. Now, you know, that we have all manner of bad actors in our capital markets. I can prove empirically that, that upwards to 100 million Americans who own, who have international exposure in their portfolios are equipping concentration camps, are trafficking in slave labor. These are Chinese corporate human rights abusers who built the surveillance state, who are aiding and abetting genocide in Xinjiang. Uh, and not to mention the aircraft carriers, the advanced weapons manufacturers of the PLA, the militarization of the islands in the South China Sea. I mean, the ICBMs targeted American families. We're picking up that tab. So when the short form answer, because I'm starting to go on a little bit here, but to get to cut to the chase, this is our money. And these kind of bad actors were even about to enter the thrift savings plan of the federal employees of this country. And we had a blood on the floor fight on this in both Trump and Biden. And now, guess what? Chinese are excised, not just Chinese mainland, Hong Kong as well. And yet the 50 states, 47 of them are holding big time Chinese exposure, and the list goes on. So, but I'll just close by saying the great thing about this deal is it is within our power. You don't have to look to the government or some abstract. You can go to your fund manager, your financial advisor, your stockbroker, and say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to tell me what my Chinese exposure is. I want you to tell me how many Chinese companies are in my passive investment funds, those index funds, those exchange-traded funds. Don't give me some pat answer about individual Chinese companies. No, 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 you show me the index funds, and I want out. And that's the beginning of how we're going to do this thing. We've got five or six legislative proposals I might get into later, but that would be my short answer and the power is ours. So your answer is follow the money. Tom, <laughs> okay, Tom, your, your comment on this, this issue. Is this, is yes, this on? Yes, it okay. is. Okay, um, thanks, Paula, and uh, I, I want to associate myself with uh, Roger's remarks. I've done a good deal of work um, in the past four or five years on the, uh, the, the state of the Chinese economy. And all you have to do is read the front pages of the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg to know that um, the Chinese economy is in, in, in real trouble. Um, and I believe that uh, the structure of their problems allows us to have a, a great deal of leverage over the uh, Chinese economy. So uh, to oversimplify, um, China has quadrupled its debt um, at every level of government um, and also uh, private sector debt 
uh, in the last, uh, since the Great Recession, since 2008, 2009. Um, they have a whole slew of problems, uh, um, demographic problems, um, un uh, vastly underfunded pension systems, uh, which in an aging society is a real problem, a, a, a malfunctioning social welfare system. Uh, they have environmental problems. Um, local governments, um, something like 30 or percent or so of local governments don't have enough revenue to meet their current obligations. Um, so what have they turned to? Well, we've had uh, Xi's uh, charm offensive in the last... Uh, Six to six to nine months to try to win over um, uh, to lower the temperature with uh, the United States and with the Europeans who are starting to wake up to the problem uh, uh, that the Chinese economy poses to their uh, manufacturing economy. So China, uh, as Rogers noted, is deeply dependent now on Western finance and on access to our markets. So those. Uh, vulnerabilities provide us with ample opportunity, I think, um, to um, e exert leverage and um, cause them to rethink, perhaps, uh, the direction they're headed in. So um, China has been assiduously trying for the last uh, 10, 12, 15 years to build alternative structures to the, the both the financial system um, and the trade system that was built up after, by basically us, after the end of the Second World War, um, have things like the Belt and Road Initiative, um, uh, a development bank, the, the BRICS. Um, so I, I think there are many things we could do to make sure that those attempts to free themselves up from dependence on the uh, Bretton Woods systems, just to oversimplify again, um, and um, make sure that our system is uh, remains robust and that they aren't able to take advantage, as, as Roger has pointed out, um, of our, our, our open markets and our uh, loose financial system. Um, so just a, a, a few things I would, uh, specific things I would recommend. Um, on the trade front, I think we need to build an alternative structure, parallel structure, if you will, to the World Trade Organization. Um, this could be part of an, a global alliance for freedom, but for like-minded countries, uh, we could build out trade uh, agreements, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, we could expand um, the um, uh, USMCA uh, US um, and the like. Uh, but exclude China unless they're at some point, which is not going to happen under uh, President Xi, uh, they decide to actually uh, implement the agreements that they undertook when they joined the World Trade Organization. Uh, I think we should work with like-minded uh, industries that are uh, uh, like-minded partners to develop our own industries uh, where China has gained some uh, advantage, rare earths, batteries, semiconductors, supply chains. Um, we need to counter their Belt and Road uh, Initiative efforts in the developing world, which has allowed them access to um, um, 
commodity resources, but also you know, important commodity resources like rare earths and lithium and cobalt. Um, we need to block their efforts to undermine the Paris Club uh, as a result of China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. They've uh, uh, issued about uh, over a trillion dollars worth of debt, uh, mostly in Africa, South Asia, but increasingly Latin America. Um, and they want the, a uh, lot of that debt is going into projects that are basically bankrupt and have no return on their investments. So China is assiduously trying to get the IMF and the World Bank to bail them out. We can certainly block those efforts, I think. Um, and we ought to do that. Um, we ought to uh, also be more active in presenting alternatives to developing countries uh, in things like infrastructure development, especially transportation uh, infrastructure, uh, transportation of uh, oil and gas to, for instance, to Europe. Uh, um, so um, some more, I think, hard-hitting measures that we ought to take, and this is um, related to the role of the state-owned banking system in China. Uh, there are all kinds of things that the Chinese are doing besides trying to develop di digital currencies and avoid uh, having their... Um, uh, their transactions uh, sanctioned by uh, uh, lack of access to SWIFT or the, uh, the CHIP system. Uh, I think we need to hit the banks um, hard and start sanctioning the banking activity of the state-owned banks in, in China. After all, they're complicit in uh, the drug trade, they're complicit in sanctions evasion, uh, to get uh, uh, products such as semiconductors to Russia. Uh, they're complicit in sanctions evasion for uh, uh, the Iranians selling oil around the world. They're helping um, um, North Korea. They're helping Russia with uh, weapons systems. The banking system has got to be complicit um, in a lot of those transactions, and that ought to be sufficient um, uh, reason to start putting restrictions on those, uh, those banks. They cannot afford to operate. The Chinese economy can't afford to operate if they aren't, don't have access to, as Roger pointed out, the SWIFT and the CHIP systems. So we have that uh, point of leverage, I think. Um, uh, finally, I, I agree again with Roger, we ought to put uh, stricter controls on outward bound uh, finance, financing uh, VC uh, investments in China in um, uh, critical technologies, but also portfolio investment uh, that uh, the, the Chinese are increasingly dependent on. Um, the uh, uh, the debt that China has, a lot of it is dollar-denominated, and if they don't have access to further financing to roll over the bad debts, they can be in real trouble. So um, these are some of the things, specific things, I think we ought to think about. Okay. I, I think we really dove deep on this one. Uh, I want to go to energy uh, security, uh, and really, when we look at it, we have witnessed the weaponization of energy by Moscow. We've also witnessed a rather significant shift of 
energy, how energy is being produced in the relationships in and throughout Europe and other parts of the world. And so, Bill, you as a former Deputy Secretary of Energy, Lee, why don't you address the question about how America can return to a position of energy dominance? What are the steps that we need to take? Enlighten us. And also, how can we support our allies in this? Thank you, um, uh, Ambassador Dobriansky. You know, I can't help but feel happy. We're going back to Reagan times here. Ambassador, you were in a small office next to Roger and me and Richard Levine. We were all struggling with the evil empire. You personally were struggling with Poland. I just want to say for the public, it was Paula that formed the relationship with Poland of the United States that brought down the evil empire, along with the money, Roger, and <laughs> along with the energy. Paul Thompson's here, Bob Helm. We're, we're really um, excited about this book. Interestingly, many of us have worked with Richard on the book, including uh, Michael Pompeo, who has faithfully read and commented on every sentence and our former boss, Admiral Poindexter, was, I would say, editor-in-chief with Richard. It is a monument. So please read the book. It is really good. You know what it does, uh, Ambassador? It pulls together the Republican Party. There are many, many positive references to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo because they had extraordinary achievements. You know, there was no war. There was energy dominance, there was a sound economy, and the vaccine got here for whatever reason, if you wanted it or didn't want it, at least you had a choice. So let's face the fact now. We are with an incompetent administration now that is squandering everything. Um, we look like we're always in second place to this or that. And let me talk about energy dominance, okay? We are number one. Part of the reason goes back to Ronald Reagan. We negotiated a free trade agreement with Canada, right? We own, along with Canada, a lot of those resources. Talk about the lower 48 and the shale gas revolution. Talk about bordering Mexico and the Gulf. Talk about Alaska. We are the energy dominant country today. And we're going to be great in nuclear. We're going to be great in renewables. But having said that, China is a nobody. Look at their energy situation. They're a nothing country. We've already demonstrated we own their financial markets. Let me also say we dominate energy and we have strong alliances like Jan Havranik here from the Czech Republic, who, by the way, the three of us take credit for educating. He's now the deputy chief of mission here, and he's going to conclude this talk with Rogers Institute, the Prague Security Study, where you have educated over 1,000 Czechs, right? Over 1,500. Over 1,500. <laughs> and Ambassador Dobriansky and I have been with you every step of the way to bring freedom to Havel's, to, to Havel's miracle of the Czech Republic. Well, let me say about energy, just three quick things, Ambassador. One, we own energy the same way that we own capital markets. We're, we're a dominant, we're the world's largest oil producer. We haven't even begun with gas yet. Talk about gas. We have so much gas. I personally have a lot of gas, by the way. <laughs> And we want to buy LNG, by the way, buy LNG, all this nonsense about, you know, not liking fossil fuels. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? I think that's funded by China. I mean, really, what idiots we are. There'll be solar, there'll be wind, but we own natural gas. We own LNG rights. We have to make sure that it's able to ship it. Secondly, nuclear energy. I got to tell you, 
we have 90 reactors going, 95, and we can do more, and we can extend the life of reactors up to 100 years. Now, that's clean energy the last time I looked at it. Plus, our partners, take Japan. They're coming back with nuclear. UK, Japan, the US agreed to triple nuclear power by the year 2050. Now, that's what I call clean energy. So nuclear power, small modular reactors, I chaired uh, the Nuclear Energy Advisory Committee of the United States for 12 years. And I can tell you, nuclear is back too. But we got to worry about China and Russia. They have nuclear programs, and they want to court the developing world and sell reactors to them. Imagine the situation where Saudi Arabia offended because this administration says, we don't like fossil fuels. What do they do? Saudi Arabia goes to China. Oh, we'll give you oil and gas, and you give us nuclear reactors. I mean, talk about a disaster. We need to get back in the nuclear market as well. And finally, this brings my, my last point, electricity for humanity. As, as you said, infrastructure is going to be the battleground of the future, frankly. Financial markets and infrastructure. China and Russia both are courting, uh, not terribly successfully, selling their reactors or whatever, or, uh, but we, together with Japan and Europe, we should be the ones selling energy so that everybody in the world has access to electricity. I said this to President Trump. I said, we should have electricity for humanity. Imagine, Mr. President, this could be the largest infrastructure program in the world. You know, with, with the president, you've got to use things like infrastructure. He gets that. Well, of course, we should be providing those markets. Our company should be making money and so forth. This is where the battleground will be in the future. It'll be in financial markets and in energy. Thank you, Paula. Right. Thank you, and thank you, Bill, for your opening comments uh, in putting us all in context. Uh, you're very generous. By the way, when he mentions Poland, I actually I give credit to Ronald Reagan, because Ronald Reagan gave one of his really beautiful speeches when martial law was imposed in Poland, and it was, let Poland be Poland. And he said, light a candle in every window. And when you go to Poland, I mean, they all remember just what he said and the support for Solidarność and uh, for fundamental freedoms. And it wasn't just only Poland, it was for the rest of Central Europe that was really just battling for their freedom. I would like to uh, carry us forward. Uh, I think we've really gone deep in terms of uh, economic security, energy dominance. I'd like to go to the theme of diplomacy, uh, military alliances, and power. And because all of these themes are dominant in your book. And I, Richard, I'd like to come to you. Uh, you open, but I'd like to come to you on the question of how do we, in your view, balance uh, the question of diplomacy and also the use of military force? What are the best strategies for doing so? And particularly, how do we balance uh, these capabilities in confronting Russia, Iran, China, and if you weave in also the importance of values, Roger in his comments did reference the kinds of human rights violations taking place uh, and the, uh, whether it's, <laughs> bluntly speaking, genocide, the suppression of fundamental freedoms, uh, China, other countries, and you connected it also to what are we doing relative to our resources. I want to weave all of this together because that's also part of diplomacy. Give us your views, your perspective. Well, Paula, you and I co-authored an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about what to do 
and also one in the Washington Times about Ukraine. And I think we were certainly amongst the first to argue for dominant air power for Ukraine with the provision of F-16s and AMRAMs and M1 Abram tanks. But we have to realize that diplomacy is actually the fruit. It is permitted by the plane of military power, plane as in the surface of military power, that allows freedom of action for the diplomat to do that which is very difficult. With, and, and one could uh, go through uh, European history and see that the mo most momentous and long-lasting political, geopolitical achievements always had as a bedrock a certain correlation of forces, usually after the defeat uh, of a power. For instance, uh, Napoleon, uh, as an example. So I would say today, uh, the capacity to exert military force, but to be circumspect in its use, undergirds proper diplomacy. Now, I would argue that our Pentagon has commingled things that should have been kept separate. In the book, I articulate, for instance, that the Marines, the only service capable of deploying a multidimensional force, including uh, all aspects of military power, that should be reserved for military action short of war. And that the Army and uh, fused with the Air Force and Navy should be after Congress declares war. We have to gain back, to answer your question, the legitimacy in America's use of force, not to have an adventurist uh, foreign policy that uses military force without the proper consideration of the human costs to servicemen and women who may give their lives or limbs, but rather to have such a dominant military capacity. And we have a friend here, Bob Helm, who knows all about this, that, that it gives other nations pause. That allows us for freedom of action on the diplomatic front. So I would say that we have to look at military power and diplomacy as part of a spectrum that spans from hard, soft, and sharp power. Uh, and also, one issue that I address in the book, uh, and it's called by different names. I've heard Europeans refer to it as uh, liminal warfare. I prefer the term threshold warfare. When China sent those balloons over America, a lot of commentators on TV said, oh, it's to take pictures or gather signals intelligence of our ICBM fields. Well, there are many ways to gather that kind of information, including, of course, satellites. What I think the Chinese were doing was trying to gauge the uh, disjuncture between the political powers that be who did not even want to acknowledge what China was doing. Remember, a local news crew first uncovered the balloon's uh, transit across America and American military power. In other words, 
Military power is, of course, important. But if the politicians don't understand the uses and the ramifications of military power, it becomes far less uh, in terms of our capacity to act. So we have to constantly engage the political class in Washington to look at the world as it is. One of the greatest geniuses who ever lived, Goethe said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the most difficult thing to see on Earth is that which is in front of your eyes. Because a lot of people don't want to look. Uh, how many times have you run across this, Paula, where people want to cashier a problem and pass it down to the next group rather than facing it head on? But we know that appeasement only begets further conflict of an even more rupturous kind. So I hope that answered uh, the question. No, ab absolutely, and thank you for that. I'm conscious of our time, and I, I want to do the following. I want to have another, if I may, a bit of a lightning round with all of you. But I want to then go to the audience and get some of their questions. And we have to also hear in our uh, finale uh, from Jan Hironik. Um, I'd like to ask this question. You know, in the book, near the end of the foreword to uh, Pillars for Freedom, Secretary Pompeo wrote, terrorism and disintegration in the Middle East support the interests of Beijing and Tehran as well as Moscow, unquote. Well, we know this also applies to Russia's assault on Ukraine. And by the way, I, I'd also say, I'd even carry this over to another issue that you addressed, is also what Russia and China are doing in our neighborhood, in Latin America. So I'm going to go to Bill first. I'm mixing it up. Uh, Bill, uh, uh, the question for you is, you know, we have a political divide in Washington. You know, what kind of advice can be offered to reassure the American people and our allies of positive outcomes in these types of crises and what we're witnessing? Sorry, you asked me that first. <laughs> okay. But well, I'm going look, to you we, we first, have to, because, first of all, because I think you have a broad uh, outlook on, on you know, how you're dealing with a, a myriad of issues. And we'll go to the others. Well, let, let me say first is we are not in decline. Others are declining faster than we are. We have to recognize our strength today. I think we're as strong as we were in the Reagan years, frankly. Um, we don't talk about it a lot. World's number one military, world's number one energy. Look at what Jan is doing with the round. I hope you'll mention about the watchtower, the alliance building that we're doing. It's unbelievable. I, I don't think we've ever been stronger. If I were China, I would worry. I think the worst thing we can do is to have, again, the merger of these, what should I say, uh, countries that are not like-minded. Somehow, I don't know if I like the like-minded so much. We need to be, frankly, uh, colleagues of a lot of countries, and that's where you come in, Paula. You're the diplomat here. So I'm going to leave that one. I'm going to leave that one to you. All right. Well, I'll, I'll go to the non-diplomat, Roger. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Roger, let's hear from you. Particularly, I mean, you, you, you know, on this issue, how do you reassure the American public and say a bit about the invasion and what we're witnessing in terms of China and, and Russia in Latin America? throughout Latin America. I mean, whether it's energy, whether it's usage of social media uh, for disruptive purposes, uh, the financial market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's hear your perspective. Well, <clears throat> I'll confess Latin America is not my beat. Um, so let me see if I can't make just a couple of observations that would, would apply. Uh, first, 
I think that uh, the financial story I told you has some lessons here. And one of them is that we're not getting the straight scoop from our government and those that are supposed to be uh, safeguarding our interests, our financial position. Uh, and you'll see, uh, I've seen it you know, in such stark terms vis-a-vis -vis the collaboration of Wall Street with conflicted U.S. regulators and the fact that we're not hearing anything about the fact that our money is being sluiced into corporate bad actors in China of the virulence that these are. Uh, you know, values, Paula, is something you've long cared about and we always want to in, talk about in, these, in this context. Americans want to have, in my opinion, increasingly, values-based investing. I think that we want to put our money, our resources, certainly on a personal level, into areas that, that we at least believe in, that aren't undermining and contradictory to everything we stand for, that are, in fact, uh, underwriting our demise and everything we hold dear in the case of China. This is a supreme irony. And do you see, I mean, we're doing all of this from the outside. You know, my little think tank, <laughs> Prague Security Study Institute, has been pioneering this subject on the capital markets. You know, where is everybody? Now, Hudson's there. Thank God for Tom and, and others in your, in your group because they are engaged. And increasingly, we're finding this kind of consciousness. But uh, when you get into somewhat more subtle subjects, whether it's nuclear or some of the intricacies of energy or finance and the lingo of finance, exchange-traded funds, variable interest entities, um, you know, the sovereign bonds, it's easy to get lost and to rely on others, uh, kind of cede our authority over to others that we trust are going to make prudent decisions for us and, and reflect our interests in a, in a, with integrity. And I can tell you that that's not happening. So what we need to do is become more engaged ourselves and put pressure on these institutions and our officials and those in Congress that are purchased, bought off, and our wholly owned subsidiaries of Wall Street, like House Financial Services Committee, Chairman Patrick McHenry and others, to name a few. The point is, there are things that we can do to say, no, no, no way. I mean, especially when it comes to my, my money. And uh, that's why I keep coming back to the fact that in so many areas, we are empowered and we are bright and we have the technology to communicate and we just have to use it for America's good to a far more intense degree than we do today. Roger, I think uh, you, Bill, in your responses, I mean, in different ways in reassuring the American public, you in terms of speaking the truth exposing what is reality and really, you know, uh, mobilizing uh, the American force, if you will, 
the public, the private sector towards this end. And as you said before, follow the money. And, and, and Bill, uh, your comments are ones which point to the importance of allies, the importance of areas and issues in which we can collaborate on. And by the way, that does reassure the public. And I think in, uh, in, in Richard's book, he lays this out in a very thoughtful way where America is leading, but it's also engaging others. Tom, give your perspective on this, and we'll, we'll go to Richard, and then I want to come to the audience. Briefly. Well, I'll, do, I'll make, again, oversimplified remarks here, but I think we have to be more confident in, in ourselves. I mean, we are the world's leading energy producer. Why in the world, when Russia went into Ukraine, we put some limits on how much they could sell their oil for? Why don't we just totally sanction their sales of oil and um, figure out how to make sure that they're, they're unable to sell the stuff on the market? Um, more recently in the Middle East, why did it take so long for us to respond to the Houthi attacks? So there, there's uh, instance after instance in which we have tried to kick the can down the road um, with China. Why don't we use some of the, the levers that we have to impose some costs on us for the damage that they're doing to our economy, but also the damage they're doing through proxies with their Iranian friends, now their you know, friend without limit, Vladimir Putin, their support of North Korea. Um, we should have the confidence that we uh, do have that leverage and we ought to use it. Well, Reagan's line, peace through strength. Richard, if, 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 if I may, may I go to the audience and then, because I'm going to give you uh, a final word. But let's see if we do have any questions. We are going to hear from Jan and we're going to hear from Richard, but are there any questions at this time uh, of, the, uh, of the panel? Yes, please, and if you'll identify yourself, and we have a mic here for you, and thank you. Hello, thank you so much um, for everything that, number one, you've done for our country, but also um, sharing all your uh, thoughts about both how the past can affect the future and what the future might look like. You're talking about- Tell uh, us who you are again. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm Colin Hively. Um, I'm actually here, uh, Max invited me, but I work at, for the Naval Undersea Warfare Center up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. The New Hampshire primary just happened, and one of the largest uh, questions for our voters was about immigration, and that's invariably as a New Englander tied to the fentanyl epidemic. So one of the questions you were uh, talking about for the relationship between Latin America and, uh, and China, obviously, there's a significant dynamic between uh, the fentanyl trade. So how, um, maybe I might ask this question to Roger relating to um, financial markets. How might we sanction some of those manufacturers of those chemicals that go into the drugs that are having this massive human cost in this country, hundreds of thousands of uh, working age males every year? Thank okay, you. all right, let's take that. And before we respond, is there another one? Let's take yours. So we're gonna take these two. Could you give the mic uh, to her? I'm doing that because for time's sake. Here. 
Thank you very much. My name is Catherine Tai. I'm from Center for International Private Enterprise. Um, I have two quick questions. I hope they're quick. Uh, the first question is that um, over the past few years, uh, we already have imposed some uh, trade restrictions. So what we have seen in response from the China side is that they have moved away some of productions from China to Southeast Asia, and also to a certain extent, uh, move a lot of them to Mexico, actually, to avoid those restrictions that uh, we have imposed on them. So I wonder if you have any comments and thoughts in terms of how we can better, you know, to kind of reduce um, the economic reliance on China and de-risking in a more effective way. The second question, I think, goes back to the infrastructure. So the Bell and Road Initiative, um, and at SIPE, we also do a Bell and Road Initiative monitor in collaboration with a lot of partners around the world to promote transparency and accountability, right? Because you do need local partners to work with you and then to ensure that there's watchdog mechanisms in place. And my question is that a lot of times when we are working with partners, they also don't like, um, you know, the corruptions, you know, the, 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 the deals that they got. But the response we got is that they have no choice. So one Nigerian partner actually told us that, you know, they have waited for World Bank to come and then build the railroad time and again and come and then check and do diligence after so many years nothing was built okay. so i wonder if it's just because um you know sometimes multilateral um institutions is not as um you know uh, uh effective responsive rapid as china um but another thing is um is it because uh for the private investment to go in it's just not enough you know, um, return on investment because the risk going to these countries are too high. So then what would be kind of your suggestions, um, you know, to address these um, Thank challenges? You. Thank you. Because I'm just, again, conscious of time. So if we could do this, uh, uh, Richard, you want to make a comment first, please. And then uh, I think Roger and Tom on this from the questions I heard. Well, I would say as to the Belt and Road Initiative, we're essentially talking about loan, build, expropriate on China's part. We've seen that across the world where it hooks, you know, sometimes with millions in bribes, you could buy billions. And we've seen this across the world in lesser developed countries where China goes in, it somehow makes connections through means that would be unlawful for our country or for most developed countries to do with politicians. It uh, creates loans for massive infrastructure projects where most of the components were in the past actually manufactured in China with impossible terms for loan repayments. And then the port, the facility, is simply the property of China. And uh, now certain countries have fought back. But this is a real problem as to corruption. And one thing we have to do, and I would go back to what Paula did uh, early on in her career, is we have to use public diplomacy to really put the spotlight on such nefarious acts of a financial nature that they cross over. Um, I did want to mention, uh, if I could, about the Americas, because there was a time early on in our republic when 
two secretaries of state became president. And um, I'm speaking, of course, of uh, James Monroe and John Quincy Adams. Now, the Monroe Doctrine uh, is named after the fourth president, but it was actually the polymath John Quincy Adams. And by, in, in many respects, in terms of intellect, John Quincy Adams might be considered to be the most intelligent of all our presidents in terms of his mental capacity. And the Monroe Doctrine changed over the years. You had the Roosevelt Corollary. Now, an interesting fact about the Monroe Doctrine that speaks to points made by my fellow panelists is that although it was written in the aftermath of the War of 1812, it was written as memory serves in 1823, it was promulgated. It was actually Britain and not the United States that pushed for its adoption in terms of it being a policy that went into effect. Why? Because Britain was interested in the relatively new concept of laissez-faire economics and not a mercantilist trade that they thought would be dominated by Spain and other European powers who they felt had not moved into the new economic paradigm. So what I would say is, if we want to secure the Americas, we have to reconstitute the Monroe Doctrine. We've had many different versions of it. Roosevelt's, uh, FDR's good neighbor policy, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt's, the Roosevelt Corollary, which gave, uh, which can be interpreted uh, a number of different ways. But basically, today we are worried about Chinese and Russian business entities inserting themselves as the advance guard uh, of uh, malefactors who would undermine uh, democracies that are severely challenged or countries that are on the cusp of tyranny. So uh, I just want to say a little bit about that. Thank you. Roger and Tom, would you like to make, if you could, brief remarks? Because then I want to give the platform to Jan to close us. Yes, for our first two questioners, and I'll try to get just a highlight or two. It's unconscionable that we haven't gone after the Chinese chemical companies, uh, some of them publicly traded, mind you, that are re responsible for the fentanyl precursors flowing into Mexico in such large volume. And the idea that our intelligence community can't get a handle on this is fanciful. If they're not, they're sitting on their hands and we're probably instructed to do so. I, I wouldn't uh, be entirely surprised because I'm just amazed by the fecklessness of our response to 80 to 100,000 of our young people perishing a year on, on fentanyl. So this is a scandal that doesn't quit I'm so pleased that it's the number one issue in so many states today, as it should be. So, and the fact is that China, as usual, is a central culprit uh, to look at here. In terms of your question, uh, going over to watching our trade policies be circumvented by going into Southeast Asia and then off to the United States, or even worse, Mexico, and doing the same again, is it really the case that we can't get a handle on this from a uh, national security agency, not to mention uh, our other 16 intelligence agencies? I, I don't buy that for a minute. 
And this is not rocket science. We could stop these obvious transshipments. They're in such volume that it's sickening, okay? So this is a pathetic excuse. And I'll just close by one more anecdote that applies to Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and the other uh, China-friendly and Russia-friendly uh, operations in Latin America. Uh, but it, what you want to look at just for a moment from an, an example point of view is Iran. We just did an analysis of Chinese involvement in Iran at, the, at Prague Security Studies Institute and found 40 publicly traded Chinese companies in everybody's portfolio, probably in this room, right, uh, that are responsible for the weapon systems, the surveillance systems, the oil purchases, the oil development, the infrastructure that keep Iran a going concern. China is the sponsor of the chief sponsor of global terror. Big surprise. They're the top of the food chain, not Iran. I mean, Iran certainly is the mastermind of today's horrors in the Middle East, but they have a layer above that, and we got to figure out how to get to them. All of those companies should be out of our markets, and it should be illegal for Americans to hold the stocks and bonds of those 40 companies. Do you know how many Vanguard of holds in its products that everybody has here? 38 of the 40. Do you know how many State Street owns? 33 of the 40. You know how much BlackRock owns? 22 of the 40. And the list goes on. Fidelity, even a higher number than BlackRock. So if you think you're safe in these household names that you rely on uh, for your well-being and trust, think again. And again, why do we allow the underwriting of these Chinese companies uh, that are picking up the tab in Venezuela? What do they have, 60 billion they put in there? And the list goes on. Thank so you. this is a research question. Thank you, Roger. Tom. Okay, quickly, and I'm going to pile on and... Uh, if you uh, would, briefly. <laughs> okay, pile on on China on the fentanyl uh, uh, question uh, in Latin America. I mean, we also have to understand that uh, China is uh, the entity that launders all of the drug money, most of the drug money uh, in the world, with complicity of its banking system. And there's probably complicity of the U.S. banking system, uh, the Hong Kong banks as well. We got to look at that. I mean, if we want to get serious about uh, fentanyl. On infrastructure, uh, we just have to be there. We're, we're, we haven't been there. We haven't put money into it. We do have uh, uh, G7 commitments for a um, trillion dollars worth, almost a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure um, investment around the world to compete with the Belt and Road Initiative. We've got to follow through on that. The Blue Dot Initiative of the uh, um, uh, Trump administration, the DFC, uh, went a little bit of the way, at least toward reducing the, the sort of the regulatory barriers that uh, are, are a problem. And finally, on um, circumvention of, of tariffs uh, by China, uh, the solar industry model, I think we ought to look at, I mean, we, we all know that uh, the solar panels are built with silicon produced in Xinjiang and all kinds of problems with that. But uh, we had a proposal to uh, uh, put tariffs on the stuff transshipped through Southeast Asia 
but the solar industry installers, all 20,000 of them here in the United States, uh, decided uh, to uh, oppose that, and the Biden administration listened to them. Uh, we, we have to be more serious about this, um, and we can't let um, you know, domestic uh, industries like solar installers to block things like that. We could do that with the auto industry as, as well. Um, so, Thank you. Let me now, thank you, uh, gentlemen. Let me now invite Jan Hronik to come up to the podium. Jan is the Deputy Chief of a Mission at the Czech Embassy. He was a former Deputy uh, Defense Minister of the Czech Republic. And also, I'd like to say, uh, is someone we work with very closely on values and human freedom, Charter 77, uh, of which the Czech Republic was certainly in the lead, President Havel, and many others who really devoted their lives to freedom. So let us turn it over to you to close us on Pillars of Freedom. Thank you, For thank freedom. you, Ambassador Dobriansky and Paula, uh, and thank you, dear friends. Uh, I want to bring in a bit of a Czech perspective and a transatlantic perspective to this fascinating discussion. And I want to start by thanking the Hudson Institute, all of my dear friends on the panel here for organizing uh, this discussion, and also to Secretary Pompeo for recognizing the role of my country in a letter that I understand has been circulated here and is on display maybe next to Richard's books. Uh, um, uh, we really value that and appreciate that. And in fact, it was Secretary Pompeo's trip in 2020 to Prague, uh, which was very much uh, dominated by China's growing influence in Central and Eastern Europe. And my government ever since has taken a clear stance when it comes to risks uh, posed by, uh, by China to our critical infrastructure. We were the first country in 2019 to recognize uh, that companies such as Huawei or ZTE present a direct threat to our direct risk to our uh, critical infrastructure and our cyber uh, authorities have been warning against uh, uh, similar trends ever since. Uh, we also recognize this in our 2021 uh, strategy that deals with countering hybrid uh, and uh, foreign interference. And most recently, uh, my government has adopted a security strategy which recognizes the adverse behavior of China together with Russia, uh, working in tandem, in fact, not only in Ukraine, to undermine uh, the rule-based order, trying to dominate the supply chains, uh, uh, alter the international norms and standards, including su the supply chains, and so on and so forth. So uh, we have no illusions when it comes to uh, to um, um, China or Russia. Now, NATO too has awoken to this challenge uh, uh, since 2019, uh, when it for the first time recognized uh, uh, challenges posed by China and as reflected in the NATO 2030 report and uh, most recently the 2022 strategic uh, uh, concept. And since 2010, NATO has been steadily working together uh, with uh, um, um, uh, with uh, uh, Indo-Pacific partners uh, to foster more cooperation between our region. And this is, in fact, something that I've been trying to replicate here uh, as a part of my modest portfolio by creating what Bill Martin referred to as the Watchtower Group, an informal group of uh, DCMs uh, led by myself and my, my Japanese counterparts talking about how to forge the alliances uh, uh, and how to address issues that bind us, uh, issues stemming from the Indo-Pacific regions, but also um, uh, educating 
in uh, some of our uh, some of our strategic cultures about uh, the the myriad of challenges. So I fully uh, concur with the panelists that we need to broaden our, uh, our alliances and broaden broaden our um, cooperation. Now is the time also for a strong U.S. leadership, uh, and we Europeans, we Czechs are ready to uh, share the responsibility, to share the burden, uh, but I will say this, uh, uh, that uh, we've always benefited uh, from a strong bipartisan uh, consensus uh, in this town on a foreign policy when it came to democratic effort, uh, and it's the same uh, bipartisan consensus that 25 years ago brought my country uh, to NATO. Without that, I would not be standing here, uh, and I hope it's the same consensus that will um, uh, assist countries such as Ukraine or Israel uh, or Taiwan in, in their struggle, uh, in their democratic fight and, and, and struggle for freedom. Uh, so with that, I want to thank uh, the audience. I want to thank my friends on the panel and um, uh, thank you and all the best. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. So, so this, this brings us to the close. It's a chance, though, for all of you to stay. I believe there are some refreshments outside. I have a chance to mingle with the author, uh, Richard Levine of Pillars for Freedom, get him to sign his book, which is outside. And also, please, for questions that maybe you didn't get a chance to ask, please, with our distinguished panelists, and no less Jan, Please, I hope you'll certainly stay and take advantage of that opportunity. But please join me now in thanking all of them.